We're involved in an ongoing study of First Peter. We're still in chapter 1, and yes, we're still in verses 1 through 3. Someone said, Pastor, you may be preaching Peter when Jesus returns. Well, that could be before next week, so I don't know. But uh, turn with me again to First Peter chapter 1. For those that are here perhaps for the first time or have not been able to hear the previous messages that center on the first three verses, we do intend to make our way through the whole epistle see what God has for us in this wonderful epistle. Uh, but let me reread again the first three verses, and then we'll move into our uh, last of our studies in those three verses. In the weeks to come, should the Lord tarry, we'll be moving on uh, further into chapter 1. But the first three verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So lofty are the truths of this epistle, we do well to remind ourselves that this first century letter comes from the hands and out of the heart of a fisherman. Follow me, Jesus said. And I will make you a fisher of men. The effectual grace of God, I think, was first evident in Peter's life when it is recorded that Jesus no sooner gave that command to follow, to become a fisher of men, that Peter straightway left his nets and followed Jesus. You might think that Peter, in his two letters, or maybe even somewhere in his recorded sermons in the book of Acts, might have used some metaphors from his uh, fishing career. But I've searched a bit and I haven't found any. But it is a curious thing that in this first epistle, he does use the imagery of another trade, uh, that of uh, architecture, the building of buildings. Uh, When we get into chapter 2, who knows when that will be, uh, we'll find that Peter is building a church. And he tells us that the foundation and the chief cornerstone over which everything else must line up is Jesus himself. But then, he says, those who have been joined to Christ are described there, and I'm going to quote chapter 2 and verse 5, described as living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's saying the church becomes the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. And every member, a priest, offering themselves and one another as living sacrifices in the service of his praise. If I might say, it's God's own 
Operation Beautification Project. His sanctifying, beautifying work in each of our lives, the living stones. A church, I'll remind you, even though we're making the physical plant a more conducive place to our worship, is but brick and mortar when we speak of the building. The church of the living God is made up of living stones, and it's you and me who've been redeemed by that precious blood. Now, it was in our last two studies, I pulled back that imagery of church building into the truths of the first three verses in chapter one, where we've been camped for a while. Though the people of God are scattered about, we saw that in verse one, they nevertheless have a cohesive identity rooted in the fact that they are called the chosen or the elect of God. We noted that God, by his great mercy, verse three, caused us to be born again and has laid a permanent foundation for us to possess. We're calling it a living hope. I should say Peter calls it a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what we said at that time was that as long as Jesus lives, you can count on it. That as long as Jesus lives, we will never, ever, even in the worst of times, be without a sure and certain hope. Our hope is not mere wishful thinking or pie in the sky someday later on. Our hope is embodied in the living, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Then we began to raise what I called in this building project, we have the four grand pillars of hope, keeping with that architect analogy. Uh, these are detailed in verse two. That's where we've been. We'll come back to it one more time today. First pillar, by way of review, the doctrine of the foreknowledge of God. And this morning, if I could simply put it in the words of my own testimony, I would say this. There was a time... I did not know the Lord. There was a time I did not know the Lord. But there was never a time that he did not know me. And I just want to say in brief, I wish I could preach the sermon over or preach it better than we did that time when we addressed this one word, the foreknowledge or the foreknowledge of God. The implications of this are just simply mind-blowing, soul-building. They are glorious in the implications of that. This is my confidence, you see, that knowing me before time means, if nothing else, and it means much more, but at least this, my present, my Monday yet to come, and my future, it all comes with a divine guarantee, with heaven thrown in. He does all things well. And unlike, I suppose, the most revered of Toyotas, he never suffers a recall, nor does he make a mistake in the life that he has predestined for glory. we got all the gas pedal and brake pedals we need in the grace of God to see us safely all the way home. The foreknowledge of God. Second pillar, 
The sanctifying work of the Spirit, that phrase in verse 2. That God works mysteriously and inwardly to set His child apart from the rest of the world for the purpose of magnifying the wonders of His grace in a changed life. You profess to be a believer. I can only pray that you are living a life that reflects that. Because that is God's stated purpose here when the Holy Spirit set us apart for obedience to Christ. The sanctifying work of the Spirit. The third pillar really is attached to that. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work that our next phrase, obedience to Jesus Christ, which gives evidence of the new life that we have received in Christ. Uh, Please think of it this way, perhaps. In the first Adam, by way of testimony again, in the first Adam, I was free to be only what my sinful will and nature would naturally choose. That's my understanding. I get, I think, from a careful study of Scripture. When I ask the question, and I am, does man have a free will? I said, absolutely. But understand this, a will as free to choose only what is in keeping with his nature. And if we're talking about the natural man, we find he doesn't even have the will to understand, let alone come to the knowledge of the truth. Folks, there's a reason why lions will not eat hay. There's a reason why you can withhold food from a captured lion It would starve to death before it would eat fresh mown hay. The reason being, it is by nature a carnivorous creature. It would choose with its will to consume enough food to survive, but it would only choose that food which is in keeping with its nature. Withhold that and the creature dies. So it is our very wills which must be operated upon. And God does that in his divine grace. In fact, it is so effective a working that it brings about what we never had before. Pillar number three, obedience to Jesus Christ. That evidence again of the new life. Prior to that, my only interests were self-interest. Where even the moral choices that I may have made prior to Christ to will to practice certain kinds of righteousness At the end of the day, the Scripture tells me, that could only yield filthy rags in the sight of God. But having been set apart by the Spirit of God to be a new creation in Christ, comes now, for the first time, an obedience from the heart. An obedience which is not based upon a meritorious work. I will work to prove to God I am worthy. No, no but rather an obedience which is just the overflow, the fruit of this inward working of the Holy Spirit. Not meritorious works, but evidential works. We work out, we work, we obey the fruits of our salvation, but we do so only because, as the Scripture says, it is God who is at work in us, listen to this, to will, to will, to do. His good pleasure. Now, this makes what I'll call active, by choice, intentional obedience to Christ a true joy 
not a drudgery. I have to tell you that sometimes I'm surprised by my own obedience. A weak a thing as it often is. Because I know if left to my old will and my old nature, I found myself doing things I would not want to do. But now I do. So I know that even my obedience, weak a thing as it is, I know it's coming from God himself and that my own flesh profits nothing. Now, this is why, should someone discover you being good, or you were to see something in me you think is praiseworthy from the biblical standard, both you and I should be very quick, should we not, to give the glory to God alone. Amen? Or apart from Him and that powerful grace at work and that inward working of, of the Spirit to bring me into obedience and conformity to His will, it would never happen. So to God alone be the glory. So then that brings us to the fourth pillar of hope. Or I'm embarrassed to say sermon number two, part C. The last of the life-giving phrases toward the end there of verse 2. You'll see it. Here it is. To be sprinkled with His blood. A pillar of hope. A sure hope, remember. To be sprinkled with His blood. Now keep that in the full context of our previous studies. You might think that the subject of the blood of Christ applied to the redeemed, would have been first in the list. Certainly not placed after obedience. But it is placed where it is, strategically, by the Holy Spirit. Follow the order of things here. Eternally chosen, always foreknown, set apart by the Spirit, obedience to Jesus Christ, and then to be sprinkled with His blood. The fisherman apostle, it turns out, is actually a good builder, at least theologically speaking. Why do you think Peter places this matter of being sprinkled with the blood of Christ after the subject of obedience to Jesus Christ? Now, I might say, all too typically, I'm guilty of this, we preachers so often reverse the order. Maybe not consciously, but I think sometimes we're seeking to shame people into obedience by reminding them that Jesus gave his life's blood for us. So, the least we can do is obey him, right? Well, now there's an element of truth in that conviction. Paul says, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So, this is not untrue, but I'll remind you that in this text... This is Peter. This is Peter. This is a man painfully aware of human weakness when it comes to an exacting kind of obedience. Peter, from the day he was called, from the day he left his nets to follow Jesus, I believe was totally sincere. He meant well, for example, when he said, Lord, others may forsake you, but I will die with you. 
Peter couldn't have been more sincere in his heart's desire. Jesus honored his sincerity. But Jesus also knew the rooster would crow and Peter would be defeated by his own lack of faithfulness. Now listen carefully on this. I would have no one misunderstand what I'm saying. I only hope to represent the truth that is here on this sacred page. Peter does not, never does, shy away from reminding us of the believer's responsibility to active obedience. But Peter will never forget the lessons of failure. He will, of course, strive to obey always. But his real peace is to be found not in his obedience, but in this last pillar of verse 2 that he recognizes he was saved and he was chosen to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. A true believer's settled peace. You want peace with God? Let me give you some biblical counsel on this. A true believer's settled peace could never come on the basis of our performance. Peace Perfect peace never can come from imperfect obedience. Only the perfect obedience of Christ, imputed to us by His sacrifice, can bring a perfect peace. Beloved, you and I most certainly needed to place our trust in the shed blood of Christ the very day we were saved. We would have never been saved without trust in that blood. But I tell you, you and I need the blood of Christ applied every day of our life because our obedience until Jesus comes is always defective in some part. It is never as consistent as it should be. And though I risk, I know... Someone in the opposition to what I'm about to say, I just believe it's true. We sin, even as the children of God, a whole lot more than we obey. One of my favorite Proverbs in Old Testament wisdom is Proverbs 24:16. What a comfort it has been in my journey. Here's what the wisest man ever said. Here's Solomon. Solomon says, The righteous man falls. The righteous man fails. The righteous man falls. Solomon says he falls seven times. And then he rises again. Now those who hold to a biblical numerology will tell you that the number seven represents in the scriptures completeness or or perfection. The number seven, for example, is representative of heaven itself. When Jesus teaches that our forgiveness of others should be a 70 times seven forgiveness, he's saying that our forgiveness is to be complete. So, among the wisest of men, when under divine inspiration says, the righteous man, 
That is, the believer clothed in Christ's own righteousness nevertheless still falls, and he falls seven times. Do you understand what he's saying to us rather politely? Then when it comes to our obedience, we are all perfect failures. We are all still falling short of God's glory. So that Jesus would say, even when we've done it all, at least in our own estimation, would be best, he says, if you still identify yourself as an unworthy servant. You see, his holiness is still the standard for our obedience. Would you raise your hand if you've arrived at that? So that's why we fall seven times. The good news is the righteous man rises again. Why? Because while we were chosen for obedience, while we are responsible for obedience, we are day to day, every day, many times a day, falling, failing. But each time we sin, we are being sprinkled with His blood. Cleansed again and again. And again, just as if we got saved all over again each new day. Yes, I know he only died once. And I know that the blood-soaked soil of Golgotha 2,000 years ago was thoroughly, powerfully effective for the salvation of every soul. But that same blood shed once goes on cleansing today. Monday. Not once, but 70 times 7 all the way to the end of our days. I like to think of it to the end of my sinning. For where sin abounds, the grace of God, what? Superabounds. The blood of Jesus Christ never loses its power. It's a good thing. Since we confess our sins, He is how faithful? He is ever faithful to forgive us our sins. And what else? To cleanse us from how much? All unrighteousness. There's power in the blood. Shed 2,000 years ago, just as efficacious to cleanse me today. And so I'm telling you that the blood of Jesus was not only necessary for your salvation on the first day you believed, it is both necessary and gloriously all-sufficient to go on sprinkling you. Cleansing us every time we are muddied and defiled by our fallings and our failings. And maybe you remember how Jesus first taught this principle to Peter. Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. And Peter was scandalized by it. Not my feet, Lord. But Jesus said to him, Peter, if I don't do this, if I don't cleanse your feet, you have no part of me. Well, that's all Peter needed to hear. He said, oh then, Lord, not my feet only, but give me a bath. Wash my whole body. Wash me. 
Jesus responded this way. He said, Peter, he who has been cleansed, that is, saved and cleansed the first time, does not need to be cleansed all over again, doesn't need to be saved all over again, but does need his feet cleansed from the defilements that come along the way in our journey home. And only Jesus can do the cleansing needed. Do you know when he did this foot washing? Just before he was about to say, you see this bread? It's my body. And it'll be broken for you. And this cup, this cup is a whole new agreement between God and myself, your Savior, that I will cleanse you from your sins by my blood. Let's take King David as an example of this because he's an extreme example. I want you to understand, David was already the chosen of God when he tragically sinned with Bathsheba. And guilty of homicide, by the way, in the premeditated death of her husband. He was, if you will, among the redeemed and yet sinned so grievously, so willfully, and with such a hard heart that even repentance would come so very slowly. But God was faithful. The word of convicting truth in the mouth of the prophet preacher, Thou art the man. And David, you know, comes to terms with his heinous crimes. But the question arose in his soul as perhaps it has in your own heart. What will give him relief from his shame? He cannot take back or undo the deed. How will he ever serve again? What will wash away the stain of his iniquity? But I want you to listen to this man pray. Oh God, according to the greatness of your mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I have done what is evil in your sight. And then he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Purify me with hyssop. How can the branch of a scrubby little desert bush cleanse from sin. Yet he says, purify me with hyssop. Well, God knew what he meant. It was Jehovah who had commanded the Old Testament priest to dip the hyssop plant into the blood of the animal sacrifice and to sprinkle it for an atonement. For the Scriptures had declared that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And folks, even before the establishment of the Levitical priesthood, we come up against this hyssop plant. All the way back to Moses. 
on the night of deliverance, which is now called Passover. Listen to Exodus 12, just briefly. Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and smite you. David, out of the depths of despair, cries to Jehovah, Be my priest. Cleanse and purify me with the hyssop. Our great high priest, Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, shed his blood and continues to sprinkle his redeemed to cleanse and purify them from their many sins until the final deliverance comes when we walk through the valley of death on dry ground. And enter the new Jerusalem. Where the blood of Christ, only the blood of Jesus Christ, has made us to fear not the destroyer. To not fear any evil. And looking back, having arrived across the threshold, we note that it was a blood-sprinkled pathway all the way home. Now, that's hope. That's peace. And it is because it's truth. You come here today as part of your performance, thinking surely this will keep God on my side. To give your offering, to impress, to manipulate. Or did you come as a free people, willingly giving, coming to please the Lord, but only because you're among the blood sprinkled. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It'll never lose its power. I was only 12 years old. And the blood of Jesus saved me. And now a half century later, folks, that's a lot of sinning. The blood of Jesus is still cleansing me. I was sprinkled by his blood last Wednesday. As I remember Wednesday, I needed a fresh application of his blood. Then again on Friday... This very morning when I fell to my knees in my study and I cried, Lord, forgive me every lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and my perpetual stubborn boasting pride. Cleanse and purify me by the blood of Christ so that I may be fit to proclaim the excellencies of your grace to my fellow sinners. You know what David prayed at the end of that Psalm 51? having asked for the hyssop branch 
and a fresh cleansing by the blood. He prayed these words. Restore to me the joy. You know, he did not say the joy of my salvation. He wouldn't want us thinking for a moment we had anything to do with our salvation. He says to Jehovah, restore unto me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then these words, then this perfect failure of a guy, then will I teach transgressors your ways. He will say to every transgressor he meets, it's a blood-sprinkled way. And when I tell that to them, because I have personally experienced it, and because it is true, he says, here's what I know, sinners will be converted to you. And if it takes your pastor publicly confessing how many sins can pile up in 50 years or 62 to get you to see this offer of full and complete forgiveness is available to you. I will so confess myself to be a sinner and only one saved by grace. You know that proverb I mentioned about falling seven times and rising again? There's a second part in the parallelism that is Hebrew poetry. I didn't give you the whole proverb. Those poor folks in the first service didn't get it. We ran out of time. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. Listen to this. But the wicked, those outside of Christ, those apart from the blood of Christ, stumble, Solomon says, into calamity. Talk about a disaster in Haiti. There's a greater one. A sinner who has not been sprinkled by the blood of Christ tumbles down into utter chaos. It is a figure of hell itself. And so I say this to anyone here this morning who has not yet been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. You need to come to him. You need to come to Christ. You need, quite literally, to plead His blood for your covering, for the cleansing of your mountain of sin. As His representative, as an ambassador of His gospel, I plead with you, come to Christ, flee to Christ, Flee from the wrath to come. Plunge beneath the cleansing flood. For nothing, nothing but the blood of Christ can wash away your sins. Come to Christ. No. Were it not for the blood of Christ, excuse me, the weight of my sins for just one week, let alone 50 years, would have crushed me 
and made me fit only for hell. But the righteous in Christ fall seven times and rise again. This being sprinkled with the blood of Christ is a glorious pillar of hope. Is it not? Is it not? The blood of Jesus that was shed for me way back on Calvary. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. It reaches to the highest mountain. It flows to the lowest valley. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. And on certain days, and for me it's usually a Monday, it soothes my doubts. It calms my fears. And it dries my tears. The blood that gives me strength from day to day. It will never lose its power. Thank you, Lord, for a Peter, fisherman, for the first three verses of this precious letter. Let me give it to you a quick summary. He chose me. He knows me. He loved me before I loved him. And in the fullness of time, he died for me and his blood. It will never lose its power. Not tomorrow, not ever, so that someday, drawing my last breath, I will say to my loved ones, if I can speak, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen.